Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. 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 What a joy to sing praises to his holy name and give worship to the Lord on high. Let's continue our worship now as we turn into the book of Genesis and the fourth chapter. Genesis chapter 4. Last week we made it to verse 12. So we're going to start our scripture reading with verse 13. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 through the, ch- through the rest of the chapter. This is God's word. And Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will be that whoever finds me will kill me. So Yahweh said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one who found him would strike him. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Then Cain knew his wife, She conceived, gave birth to Enoch. He built a city and called the name of the city Enoch. After the name of his son, excuse me, he called he uh, called the city the name this, excuse me. He built a city, called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. And Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabel, and he was the father of those who live in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He, play, he was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give ear to my word, for I have killed a man for striking me and a boy for wounding me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Then Amic, excuse me. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, "God has set for me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him." And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And men begin to call, then men begin to call on the name of the Lord, of Yahweh. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for another opportunity to serve you in it and glorify your name in it. We pray that you would be blessed by the reading of this word. And as Brad said, that you would change our hearts even through this text. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I love how I can pronounce Methuselah-L, but not Enoch. <laughs> okay. okay, that's what kind of morning it's going to be. We have a lot to get to this morning. If you can remember from our time last week, we spent a considerable portion of 
our time looking into the events of the first humans born of natural conception, the first children of man. In fact, the first two men born of Adam's line, of Adam's seed. The first pair of brothers born to this first couple, Adam and Eve, Cain, the one whom Eve said she acquired with the help of the Lord, the firstborn, the one whom Eve supposed to be the promised seed, the promised deliverer from, from God back in Genesis 3.15, the strong and capable chosen one who would end up taking after his daddy and being a strong cultivator of the ground, and the other kid, Abel, you know, the shepherd boy over there. Well, you, you'll also remember how we read not only of the first children, but of the first murder. As in adulthood, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. He killed him all because Yahweh had accepted righteous Abel's offering and rejected Cain's wicked offering. And I feel very comfortable calling him righteous Abel because that's what our Lord Jesus Christ called him in Matthew 23. He was righteous. He was declared righteous. He was made right. He was justified in the sight of a holy God on the basis not of his sacrifice, but rather because of his heart behind the sacrifice. He was declared righteous in the same way that all of God's children would go on to be declared righteous, from Abel to Enosh to Noah to Abraham to Moses, and including everyone here this morning, by divine grace alone, through God-given faith alone. Abel was faithful. Cain was faithless. Abel was a believer. Cain was an unbeliever. Abel was righteous. Cain was wicked. Abel was among those considered to be the seed of the woman. Cain was of the seed of the serpent. Abel was a man of the holy one. Cain was a man of the evil one. And so right from the beginning, there have only ever been two types of people in this world. Only two. And that continues up to and including this very day. Even right now, even as we sit in this room, we sit here as either one or of two kinds of people. One of only two kinds of people. We are either justified by faith alone or we are still under the wrath of a holy God. It's only two kinds of people. Which one are you? That's what I want to ask right from the get-go. Which one are you? Well, in the case of Genesis 4, what we saw was an immediate fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman and then the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, speaking of his offspring and her offspring, ultimately including the ultimate, uh, and including the ultimate seed who is Christ, the one who would, in fact, crush the head of Satan. In fulfillment of Yahweh's words in Genesis 3, we see the first murder on earth as Cain slew his brother Abel. And that's where we'll pick up this morning, right after the ground opened its mouth to receive Abel's blood, the ground which then opened its mouth again to declare it, to declare to the heavens the shedding of righteous blood, causing the the creator of the heavens and the earth to say to Cain, what have you done? What have you done? Where is Abel, your brother? You remember what he said? I do not know. Well, did he know? 
So what does that make Cain? A liar. That's right. A liar. Point one. Now, this is something, and it's, this is a perfect time to be honest here. This is something that man in their original state, including all of us, have battled since we toddled around on God's green earth. I mean, almost from the moment we are able to speak, we are able to lie. And we do lie. I've seen it right here myself, right in this very building. Did you eat that cupcake? No? Well, what's that frosting-like substance on the corner of your mouth? Did you break that window? Did you throw that rock? Did you shoot that bird? Did you take our car? Oh, yes, the lies of our childhood. Oh, the lies that I told as a kid. My poor mother. I think of my poor mom. What about our adulthood, though? just kind of continues on, right? Maybe a bit more subtly. Even what some would consider little white lies. No, officer, I don't know how fast I was going. Yeah, I'm not feeling really well today. I can't make it in. I think that deduction sounds about right. Yeah, I did. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see your text. I didn't hear your call. My phone was off. How about this one? Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I will be praying for you. (laughs) On and on it goes. Ultimately, however, as has been said, truth has no degrees or shades. A half-truth is a whole lie. A white lie is really black. And we're all guilty of it to some extent. However, to consistently, deliberately bear false witness, to outright, unabashedly lie, is among the greatest things a person can do to obliterate their own testimony. I've heard many situations, I've been in many counseling situations where professing believers even will say things that are outright not true. And typically, we know it's not true, yet they keep on lying. Why? Because it works. It works because a lot of times humans, human beings are able to successfully lie to one another in order to get what they want or to push an agenda. But I'll tell you, when a, when a person flat out lies to me, I don't know about you, but it's a, it's a long time before I believe anything that comes out of their mouths again. Especially if they maintain that lie for an extended periods, a period of time. Typically, you know what I call such people? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. Yeah. In other words, I believe that true Christians, true, true born-again believers, those justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who now have the Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of them, don't have the capacity to then carry on falsehoods for prolonged periods of time. Again, I don't know about you, but if, if I were to tell you all a lie right now, whether small or great, it would eat at me to the point where I cannot sleep. I I can't eat. I can't do anything until it's been made right or clarified. And I don't say that as a boast. Believe me, I have nothing in myself to boast about. Rather, I say it as a testimony to the Spirit who now dwells in me, the the Holy Spirit who won't let me or any other genuine born-again believer live in a perpetual state of deception or sin. You can go read 1 John if you don't believe me. That's what he says throughout the whole thing. 
The true believer ought to have an overwhelming conviction in their souls when presenting themselves certainly before other believers in a way that is false or not real or disingenuous or insincere. And that's what lying is when it's all said and done. An attempt to alter the appearance of circumstances of any given situation based on the false testimony that is born. That's lying. And people who lie are liars. That's why we're warned repeatedly throughout scriptures of the dangers of lying. A faithful witness will not lie. But a false witness breathes out lies. Proverbs 14. Again, only two kinds of people. Faithful witness or false witness. David said, guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Peter quotes this very thing in the third chapter of his first epistle, speaking to born-again Christians. He says, be like-minded, be sympathetic, be brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace, pursue it. Now listen, only two kinds of people. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attended to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Just two. The eyes or face of God is toward one group of people, the righteous, and it's against the other type of people, the wicked. That's what Peter said. It's not my words. His face is against those who do evil constantly, consistently, unashamedly. That's why he calls them evildoers. Cain is obvious. What have you done? Cain, where is your brother? Then, not just to other humans who, again, can be fooled. We can all be fooled very easily because we have to take each other at our word. But not only to other men, but to God himself who can see into Cain's heart, who saw clear back in the garden the enmity that would be between those of the evil one and the offspring of the woman, yea, who before the foundation of the world would know that this murder would be born and this murder would occur. Cain says, I do not know where he is. He straight up lies to God. The, the same God who would go on to include bearing false witness amongst the greatest moral transgressions of his holy law. Thou shalt not do it. Again, as again, he makes it crystal clear in his word that lying lips are detestable to him. Detestable. Lying lips are an abomination to Yahweh, Proverbs 12 says. But doers of faithfulness are his delight. So, not only was the faithful, or excuse me, faithless sacrifice of Cain an affront to the living God, 
But the guy then doubles and triples down on his despicable ways by murdering another human being, then lying about it, then by being a smart aleck about it, then by digging his heels into his rebellious actions, uh, by showing absolutely zero remorse. In fact, even defending himself for it all. Look at this testimony in verse 9. I don't know. What, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, is he one of my sheep? Am I supposed to be tending to him all day? He was the shepherd boy, not me. Remember that? Verse 10, Yahweh said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now, cursed are you from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength over you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Now watch the shift in attitude here. Classic. From cockiness to cowardice. And Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. Same terminology. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. It will be that whoever finds me will kill me. So again, far from a penitent heart. But not even any hint of remorse for what he had done, for the murder, for the outright lie to God. Not only do we not see a smidge of genuine repentance from this Judas, I'm so sorry, Lord, that I've done this. I was jealous. I got angry. I spurned your counsel. I allowed sin to dominate me. God, God, please forgive me. Let me offer to you right sacrifice as my brother did. Cause me to believe in your gracious kindness that you extend toward us woefully depraved sinners. I'm so sorry you are right. I'm exactly who you say I am. I'm exactly who the ground says that I am. I'm a murderer. But Lord, please forgive me of this transgression and change my wicked heart. Not only do we not see a hint of that, not only do we not see a shred of sincere repentance or transformation from Cain, but we actually see him playing the victim in all this, which is classic. Again, I wish I could tell you how I've seen it over and over and over again from pathetic men like this. God, how could you punish me like this? How could you punish me like this? How could you put your finger on my sin? How could you bring my wickedness into the light? How could you do this to me? You're cursing me? You're cursing the ground? That's my livelihood. I can't believe you'd do that to me and my family. I'm going to be a wanderer. You've turned me into a homeless man. You're just an angry God. But you have no right to be angry. No, you're supposed to be loving and forgiving and gracious all the time, no matter what. This is too much. This is too much for one man to bear. You know, this is all your fault, actually. Well, that's the gist of this text. You see it with your own eyes. See how he shifts the narrative from his sin to his plight? Makes himself the victim? I mean... The body of his brother is not even cold yet. But here he is talking about his injustice and his struggle. It's the epitome of natural man's disposition, false converts included, and it's right out of Satan's playbook. 
unregenerate man continually sins and rebels, then lives out the rest of his existence fighting a holy God, fighting the people of God in an attempt to shift the blame from where it actually belongs. Sometimes it's manifested in lesser ways, oftentimes not in a dramatic circumstance as a murder. But in the end, when it's all said and done, when all the dust settles and all the smoke clears, wicked unbelievers are concerned with one thing, themselves. The preservation of their own lives. Never mind godly grief, which Paul says leads to repentance. Cain didn't even show worldly grief. Zero regret, zero remorse for murdering his brother in cold blood. In fact, he lied about it. Then he made himself a martyr in the end. Said God was sending him on a journey of certain death. But God knows the truth. God always knows the truth. That's my refuge. He always knows the truth. He always knows the heart. So he says, no, 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 no. Nobody's going to kill you, Cain. Nobody's going to kill you. I'm not going to let you get off that easily. Verse 15, Yahweh said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. No, I'm not going to let you die just yet. I'm going to let you live out the rest of your days in futility. I'm going to let you store up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment, is what this is. Oh yeah, you will live. And your line will live, but you'll live out the rest of your, the days of your miserable life with my face hidden from you. That's the greatest punishment a man can receive. It's a punishment that would be carried on even after Cain perished from this earth when the Lord looks at him and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Cain knew that. He knew it, which is why he said in verse 14, and from your face I will be hidden. Right before Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain so that no one who found him would strike him. I don't know what this sign was. What is this mark here? Was it a tattoo? Was it some kind of fire from heaven, some kind of miracle? I I don't know. But again, the greatest worry in, in Cain's eyes was how he was viewed by other people. That's what he was worried about. As Waltke said, Cain here responds with self-pity instead of repentance. He fears physical and social exposure, but not the invisible God who has made him. That's a horrendous place to be, folks. Miserable place. James Boyce noted, Again, there are resentment and self-pity. No one likes these things in others, but no one is so blind to anything as these when... They occur in himself or herself. Cain had killed a man, his own brother. But he was so possessed with resentment against God and others that he could not see the enormity of his crime and so actually felt sorry for himself when God punished him with far less of a judgment that he deserved. Right? Those are such good quotes. I wish I could read them again. But we can't. I'll send them to the body after the sermon. These are the marks of a truly unrepentant, unjustified, unredeemed man. And consider again God's grace. First in not slaying Cain and sending him to hell the moment he killed, lied, sassed. 
but even in some respects, allowing him to go on living, to enjoy life, to enjoy a a woman's warmth, to have a kid. Uh, Yet, even amidst all this common grace, Cain's heart remained as hard as a rock, as did his martyrdom complex, probably. But it just goes to show you, um, unless a man's heart is transformed by the Lord, like truly transformed, if a man does not come to saving faith in the Lord Most High uh, and his heart is not transformed by the Lord, he will never repent. He will never come to his creator on his own. You know, this reminds me a lot of the wicked men at the end of the world in the tribulation period. All these people who are the witnesses of all these miraculous judgments from heaven, the sky rolling up like a scroll, the great earthquakes, the fiery hail, the earth splitting open, the stars falling from the heavens, the tremendous plagues on both man and beast, the blood that's running through the waters. John says even after this, in Revelation 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not repent. Revelation 16, 11, even as the tribulation period gets cranked up to fever pitch, John says, and men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the authority over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. They did not repent. Like Cain, they would not repent. Like the rich man burning in Hades is only concerned with his punishment and not his sinning against a holy God. Cain proves here that his, his heart is rock hard to the things of God as he even attempts to make Yahweh the bad guy in all this. All while making himself the victim in the process. It's truly pathetic. Truly. And our application for this morning, don't do that. Don't do that. Again, I would plead with you this morning, don't go the way of Cain. Don't go the way of Cain. Do not harden your hearts to God's grace. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. Repent of your sin. Cry out to him for forgiveness. He is merciful. He is gracious. Ask him to save you. Ask him to set you free from the bondage of your own iniquity. Ask him in all sincerity to transform your heart. You cannot do it on your own. Ask your creator to reconcile you to himself, to wash you of all your sin, to justify you in his sight by faith alone. And that's the only way to come to the Father. The only way to come to the Father is to get off of the way of Cain. And to get on to God's way, the only way. And I bid you, come on the way. Through the way, the truth, the life. The Lord Jesus Christ, come to him today. Come to Christ, whose sacrifice was sufficient to atone for all of your sins. Past, present, even future sins, no matter what they are. Lies deceptions, lust, even murder itself. But you must come his way, the only way. You must turn from your sins and put your trust in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his sin-satisfying blood at Calvary before being raised three days later to secure eternal life for all 
who would believe. Amen? That's right. Now, about this journey of Cain, about this line, let's answer the question that's likely on everyone's mind right now. Who are these people that Cain is so afraid of? That he was afraid would kill him the moment they saw him. So far, all we know about is Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Who are these people that Cain speaks of here as potential threats to his life? Well, it would have to be his brothers and sisters, right? We don't know the exact timeline here, nor do we know the true population of the earth in Genesis chapter 4, but it's clear he was nervous about being avenged by the members of his family. No other options, right? Which leads us to Cain's fatherhood. We've seen his falsehood, his victimhood, and now his fatherhood. Again, Yahweh allows even totally depraved, spiritually dead, unrepentant, God-hating men and women to enjoy the common graces of this life, right? I mean, even wicked Cain was able to marry, again, most likely his sister. <laughs> the effects of inbreeding and genetic mutations not quite as prevalent as that at that time, but it had to be one of his siblings. Adam lived over 900 years, and he and Eve had many, many children many, many grandchildren. Some estimate this couple could have seen a million people before they died. And the line actually extended to all people who have ever lived, meaning we're all one big happy family in here, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But Cain, Cain, my friends, was the original sister lover. Oh, yeah. And again, not only was he able to take a wife, but he also had children. Children who would go on to have children. Cain had his own line, his own progeny, his own posterity. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh, settled in the land of Nod, or wandering, east of Eden. Then Cain knew his wife. She conceived and gave birth to Enoch. He built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now, this is a different Enoch than Brad will tell us about next week. This was the first Enoch who had the city built after him. Now, the mention of the city here is remarkable. Cain does not wander the earth as some homeless nomad, but rather in direct opposition to God, he settles down. He becomes self-sustaining. He even starts a tent city with his offspring being a uh, excuse me, his offspring being a major part of its development and population. So now his line. Verse 18. Now to Enoch was born Irad. Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. The line lives on. Interestingly, Cain's great-grandchild and great-great-grandchild were given names which included a reference to God, general. You see the L's there? That's the same word for God. Mehujah-el, Methushah-el, like Elohim. In fact, Methushah-el means who is of God. But as we'll see, this was just the generic name for a God. Uh, this was far from godly. It was a, the city was far from godly. It was like a Romans 1 city. It was a very culturally minded, secular minded city, much like the country we live in today. 
Actually, this is evidenced by the man who would come next in the line who I've called the loser. Now, I was going to call him the lover, seeing as how Moses writes in verse 19, Lamech took for himself himself two wives. He was going to be the lover. The name of the one was Ada. The name of the other was Zillah. This is the first case of bigamy here, which the Lord would go on to condemn at a later time. I was going to call Lamech the lover, But based on the rest of his story, the rest of his testimony, I think we'll stick with loser. And you'll see why. First of all, back to these two lovely ladies. Ada means beauty or ornament or pleasurable. And Zilla or Sila means shade or covering, which some commentators feel could be a reference to her beautiful flowing hair. Either way, we can see the the seeds of vanity and worldliness begin to take form in this city here. And in this particular descendant of Cain, this man, Lamech, I think, is the perfect example here. First of all, note how the hardened, obstinate heart is passed on from generation to generation to generation. Fathers to their sons. No mention of Yahweh among the accomplishments of Lamech or his three sons, just nominalism mixed with worldly ventures and virtues. For example, verse 20, his son Jabel was born to Ada. He was the father of those who lived in tents and had livestock. Okay, for what purpose? Well, to survive, even to prosper, but to sacrifice to Yahweh? Doesn't appear so. We don't see anything. What about his brother? Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Okay, so we got some musicians. Great. But what, uh, for what purpose here? Was it for musical worship to Yahweh? I don't know. We can't be so sure. Verse 22, as for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. So you got Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal. (laughs) No comment needed there. But this last guy, uh, Tubal Cain, he made tools, surely bridles and troughs and goads to help his brother out with the livestock, surely hoes and plows to help this great tent city harvest their food, but also uh, very likely swords and spears and weapons of war that we'd see implemented as people grew uh, increasingly evil. Now, it doesn't say these things outright. It doesn't help to speculate, but nothing here indicates that any of these people walked in the way of Abel. They were all, as it were, on the way of Cain. This was a city of destruction, much like the cities we've seen established throughout the ages, including those in our place and time. And one of the founding fathers of the city was one who shared the arrogance and pride of our world leaders today. This key member of Cain's line, this Lamech, this loser, who in verse 23 actually boasts to his wives about his own strength, his own might, and his own lust for blood. And Lamech said to his his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Doesn't he sound like a peach already? Hear my, wife, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give ear to my word, for I have killed a man for striking me and a boy for wounding me. So this guy's a child murderer, and he's bragging about it. 
If that gives you any hint to what life in this city was like, it's his way of saying, I am untouchable. I am invincible. I run this town. I'll take care of myself. Why, I even killed a man who hit me and a boy. Can you believe it? A child had the audacity to wound me, ladies, so I killed him. I killed him. Then, with a nod to his great-grandpa, he, he openly taunts Yahweh. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77-fold. You know what he's saying here. If someone killed Cain, God said that he'd only take it out on them sevenfold. This is a stark warning indeed. But I am much greater than God. Oh no, someone touches me and the wrath that will come upon them will be 70 times seven. You don't believe me? I'm even capable of slaying little boys should they get in my way. It's ungodly arrogance. This is the boast of a wicked heart. Uh, This is straight up self-righteousness, self-glorification, self-exaltation, and all something, frankly, we were all capable of in our natural state. Uh, Not only the sins themselves, but the reveling in them as well. It's pride, right? It's human pride. This is the first pride parade. But instead of being homosexual or transgender pedophile flaunting their abominations throughout the streets of our cities, this, this pervert was championing, championing his depravity and his detestable ways before these two women here. And it's all immortalized on the pages of Scripture. And it's all rooted in pride, human pride, which is one of the things that Yahweh hates most of all. Jonathan Edwards said this, pride is a person having too high an opinion of himself. Pride is the first sin that ever entered, ever entered into the universe and the last sin that is rooted out. Pride is the worst sin. It is the most secret of all sins. There is no other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable. Alas, how much pride the best have in their heart. Pride is God's most stubborn enemy. There is no sin so much like the devil as pride. It is a secret and subtle sin and appears in great many shapes which are undetected and unsuspected. Turn to Proverbs 6 with me. I want you to see, tell, tell me if this doesn't describe Cain and Lamech to a T. And you've got to look at it in your own Bibles or you know the, you know the narrative. Someone will say I made it up. Proverbs 6. Don't take my word for it on things like this now. We're going to look at verses 16 through 19. Now, now again, Lamech and Cain. There are six things which Yahweh hates. Even seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, or a proud look. A lying tongue, check, check. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked thoughts. Feet that hasten to run to evil. Check, 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 check. And again, a false witness who breathes out lies. 
Finally, one who spreads strife among brothers. Yahweh hates this. He hates those who spread strife among brothers. That's why Cain is a liar and Lamech is a loser. As were all of us who were once on this way of Cain, mastered by our own pride. As are all those who are still on this way of Cain this morning, if you hear my voice. So not only will I warn you by the power of God's word and the strength of his spirit to turn from going on this way, but I would give you a direct warning to not associate with those who are clearly walking on it. Yes, even those who are standing behind the pulpits and seated in the pews all across this country. They are wolves. They are ravenous wolves, ultimately doing the will of their father, the devil, who was both a liar and a murderer from the beginning, as he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be on guard against those of the evil ones. I warn you again to be on guard against those who are on the way of Cain. So, Lamech is a loser. And he's a loser because like every other strong, boastful, arrogant, proud man, he one day got old and he one day died. In other words, he may have been out there slaying men and boys and everyone else who got in his way during the days of his youth. He may have been a strong man boasting before his multiple beautiful wives, but those days were short-lived. They were just a flash in the midst of a vapor of a life, just like every life throughout the history of the world has been, even the ones which lasted hundreds of years. Think of the strongest men and women in the world right now. Go ahead and think about them. I mean, in terms of power and authority and ability and clout, influence, whatever it may be, think of the world leaders, think of the athletes and the entertainers and the scholars, the greatest minds and talent among us. Now think about what they'll look like in 150 years. Not so impressive anymore, right? That's right. That's why I call this guy a loser. Look at his legacy. The testimony he left behind. Ah, two wives, a few kids. He killed a guy. He killed a little boy. He blasphemed his creator. Then he died. And we don't hear of Lamech or his lion ever again. That's it. This is his life, according to Scripture. Then dead. (laughs) It is appointed for man to die once, then judgment. Then he stands before his creator to give an account where he will not see the face of his creator, but will be sentenced to an eternity apart from the common graces of of God in hell, as will his wives, as will his sons and their sons and everyone else in this God-forsaken city, unless, unless by God's grace alone, they were given the ability to believe in his promises and through faith alone be justified in his sight. Okay? But that's it for Lamech's life. (laughs) I mean, that's it. And I'll just be straight up with you guys this morning. That will be your life as well. Should you not come to true and saving faith. You will live. You'll be strong for a season. You'll be powerful for a season. You'll be beautiful for a season. You'll get to experience the common graces of that other men and women get to experience. Maybe you'll get married. Maybe you'll have some kids, some grandkids. Maybe you'll make a little money and do some really significant things for this world. But unless you truly believe, 
Unless you have come to the Father through Jesus the Son, I'm here to tell you this morning, my friends, it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. In fact, the graces and mercies He extends to you during your time on this earth, including hearing the gospel message this very morning, will one day cry out against you. They will one day act as your greatest accusers and prosecutors as you continue to spurn His gracious offer of salvation. Don't do it. Don't do it, my friends. Don't harden your heart for another day. Hear his call this morning through his word. Hear his call through the proclamation of the shed blood of this promised seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did in fact crush the head of the serpent on the cross at Calvary, who did remove the sting of death, who did pay the penalty of and bear the, weight of, the full weight of sin for all who would but believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. May today be the day that you bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to, come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Give him the glory, great things he has done. Such redemption, such reconciliation is absolutely possible for you today. We, we are not without hope this morning, my brothers and sisters. In fact, we don't even get out of this chapter without being a, given a foretaste of glory divine. As we see a new seed, a new line being formed from whence the Christ himself would come. If you go to the lineage of uh, genealogies in, in Luke 3 and Matthew 11, you'll see it for yourself. You'll see some familiar names. And they all come back to the one mentioned right here in verse 25. Then Adam knew his wife again. She gave birth to a son named Seth. She named him Seth. For she said, God has set for me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve says, okay, my two sons, the two sons born in my womb, both of them are gone. One is dead, the other is dead to me. But, but now, now, look at the wording here. God has set for me another. God has set for me in place of. Now earlier when Cain came, you remember her words, I've acquired or even produced a man with the help of the Lord. In other words, look what I did. I made the deliverer. Oh, and God helped, by the way. Now? No, no, no. I didn't have anything to do with this. God has set for me another. This is a recognition of divine sovereign authority as Eve, the mother of all living, the faithful one herself, recognizes finally God has granted me another seed. Not in place of Cain, notice, but in place of my faithful son, Abel. Eve knows this would be a righteous seed, and righteous he was. You see, Seth was not a liar or a loser. Seth was a leader. He was the leader of a godly line. As one preacher said, while Cain built a city, Seth built a church. As Enosh, or Enos, <laughs> came. And men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. And we see it, Seth to Enosh. Enosh to Kenan, Kenan to Mahalalel, all the way to Noah, Noah to Shem, Shem to Arpashad, Arpashad to Shelah, all the way down to a man named Terah, who was the father of a man named Abraham. 
through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed, ultimately through his descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to go to Matthew 1 tonight, go to Luke 3 tonight, look at those names, look at the names of those men in the first days whom we'll be looking at over the next couple of months. As we dive headlong into the genealogies, or what some have called the cold showers of the Old Testament. (laughs) Uh, No, they're all very significant. Very. We'll consider them all starting next week as Brad walks us through Genesis chapter 5. I would sincerely encourage you all to come hear the magnificent truths therein. For now, I'm going to close with this quote from James Boyce who said regarding this leader, Seth, the line of Seth had recognized that sin was no mere imperfection of human nature, but something destined to destroy both the individual and culture unless it should be overcome by the grace and power of Almighty God. So, these individuals now threw themselves on God and trusted Him wholly for their physical and spiritual salvation. Is that true of you this morning, my brothers and sisters? Have you thrown yourself upon the mercies of your Creator? Have you placed all of your trust in Him and in the finished work of Christ at Calvary? If so, I want you to leave this place encouraged this morning that even in the midst of such corruption and such misery and wickedness, deception, poor government, uh, oppression, war even, in a world chock full of liars and losers, in the midst of our own struggle with remaining sin, our own battle with the flesh, the gracious God of the heavens and the earth extends his gracious invitation, even today, an invitation to call upon his name. And not only in the moment when our human pride is destroyed and we call upon his name for salvation, but for the rest of our days on earth, he invites us to call upon his name, to trust in him wholly, to depend on him fully, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, any time he invites us to call upon him, to trust him, to lean on him, to depend on him for everything in this life, even for eternal life thereafter. And for the rest of our days on earth, he invites us to call on him in humble gratitude and praise and adoration for what he's done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a delight to give it to him. Amen? For he is truly worthy of our praise. Pray with me now as Noel comes up, closes us in musical worship. Heavenly Father, hard words today. Hard words as we looked at a hard man. A hard, a hard man with a hard heart who had a hard testimony, as did those in his line. Lord, we give you all praise and all glory from sparing us of our hardness, our own human pride, and bringing to the light our absolute inability to come to you through any other means but by the shed blood of the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we can't do it. We couldn't do it. We still can't do it. And we marvel in this. We revel in it. We do. We, we love to be fully dependent on you because we know we were all in the way of Cain. And uh, 
Lord, by your grace, you took us off of it and, and brought us to the way, the, the truth and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for that. As a body, as your body, we're so thankful for your gospel of grace. And we long to give you praise for it forevermore, for all of eternity. But for now, it's a joy to sing praises to your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.